Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Horror and pain in Gaza. CNN witnesses firsthand the intense suffering at a hospital inside the enclave and we'll have a special report. And amid the anger and loss, a beacon of hope. I'm joined by two new friends who've lost loved ones to this war, a Palestinian and an Israeli, who now fight together for peace. Then, is this the end of dirty energy? COP26 President, UK MP Alok Sharma, reacts to that landmark deal on fossil fuels. Plus, the upcycled self-renowned rapper Black Thought on his new memoir, a story of tragedy and resilience. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Tonight, what we've reported on for two months, we see through the eyes of our own correspondent for the first time, the desperate humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Since Israel lost 1,200 citizens to Hamas slaughter on October 7th, their counteroffensive in Gaza has had a catastrophic effect on Palestinian civilians. More than 18,000 Gazans have been killed, according to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health there. And today, Israel's defense minister informed the visiting U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, their war on Hamas will last, quote, more than several months. Sullivan's meetings with government officials, including Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, come as the White House pushes them to be more precise in reducing the risk to civilians. Scores of brave Palestinian journalists have been bringing the horrors suffered in Gaza to the world. Many of them have lost their lives doing so. Now, CNN is the first Western media outlet to gain access without Israeli military escorts. Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward witnesses the severe crisis on a visit to a field hospital facilitated by the UAE. And of course, it is painful to watch. You don't have to search for tragedy in Gaza. It finds you on every street, strewn with trash and stagnant water, desolate and foreboding. So we've just crossed the border into southern Gaza. This is the first time we've actually been able to get into Gaza since October 7th. And we are now driving to a field hospital that has been set up by the UAE. Up until now, Israel and Egypt have made access for international journalists next to impossible. And you can see why. Since October 7th, the Israeli military says it has hit Gaza with more than 22,000 strikes. That by far surpasses anything we've seen in modern warfare in terms of intensity and ferocity. And we really, honestly, are just getting a glimpse of it here. Despite Israel's heavy bombardment, there are people out on the streets. A crowd outside a bakery. Where else can they go? Nowhere is safe in Gaza. Used to be a stadium. Arriving at the Emirati Field Hospital, we meet Dr. Abdullah Al-Nakbi. No sooner does our tour begin when... Our ambulance... And this is what you hear all the time now? Yes, 
at least 20 times a day. At least 20 times a day. Maybe more sometimes. Uh, I think we get used to it. One thing none of the doctors here have got used to is the number of children they are treating. The UN estimates that some two-thirds of those killed in this round of the conflict have been women and children. Eight-year-old Janan was lucky enough to survive a strike on her family home that crushed her femur but spared her immediate family. She says she's not in pain, so that's good. Her mother, Hiba, was out when it happened. I went to the hospital to look for her, she says, and I came here and I found her here. The doctors told me what happened with her, and I made sure that she's okay. Thank God. They bombed the house in front of us and then our home, Janan tells us. I was sitting next to my grandfather, and my grandfather held me, and my uncle was fine, so he is the one who took us out. But Dr. Ahmed Al-Mazrawi says it is hard not to. I work with old people, like uh, adults, but the children, no. Something touching you. Touches your heart and tests your faith in humanity. As we leave Janan, Dr. Al Nakbi comes back with the news of casualties arriving from the strike just 10 minutes earlier. So we just got us, they will send right now two amputated uh, young uh, male uh, from uh, the, just the bomb. From yeah. the Qasaf we just yes. heard, from the bomb we just heard? This is uh, my understanding. Okay. They will arrive to our ready area. A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. What's your name? What's your name? The doctor asks. The notes provided by the paramedics are smeared with blood. The tourniquet improvised with a bandage. Since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago, it has been inundated with patients. 130 of their 150 beds are already full. So let me understand this. You are now basically the only hospital around that still has some beds? I guess so, yes. Or maybe I'm very sure of that because they are telling me uh, one of the hospitals with a capacity of 200, uh, they are accommodating 1,000 right now. And the next door hospital, I'm not very sure, it's like 50 to 200, uh, has maybe 400 to 500 patients. So at one occasion he called me, he said, I have three patients in each bed, please take any. I told him, send as many as you can. I mean, we've been here 15 minutes, and uh, this is already what uh, we're seeing. This is, you hear it, you see it. In every bed, another gut punch. Less than two years old, Amir still doesn't know that his parents and siblings were killed in the strike that disfigured him. Yesterday he saw a nurse that looked like his father, his aunt Nahaya tells us. He kept screaming, Dad, Dad, Dad. Amir is still too young to comprehend the horror all around him. 
But 20-year-old Lama understands it all too well. Ten weeks ago, she was studying engineering at university and helping to plan her sister's wedding. Today, she is recovering from the amputation of her right leg. Her family followed Israeli military orders and fled from the north to the south. But the house where they were seeking shelter was hit in a strike. The world isn't listening to us, she says. Nobody cares about us. We have been dying for over 60 days, dying from the bombing, and nobody did anything. Words of condemnation delivered in a thin rasp. But does anyone hear them? Like Grozny, Aleppo and Mariupol, Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare. It's getting dark, time for us to leave. A privilege the vast majority of Gazans do not have. Our brief glimpse from a window onto hell is ending, as a new chapter in this ugly conflict unfolds. And the hell continues. Clarissa Ward reporting there from southern Gaza. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Meanwhile, a concrete snapshot about what some of our guests and experts have been telling us since October 7th and the counteroffensive on Gaza. A respected Palestinian polling agency now says support for Hamas has more than tripled in the occupied West Bank compared to three months ago. The results say support is even up in Gaza, but by a much smaller amount. October 7th and its aftermath have clearly caused deep divisions at home and around the world, often ugly, polarizing divisions, even within families, amongst work colleagues and fellow students, which makes my next guest mission to build bridges not to burn them truly extraordinary. Megan Inan's parents were both killed on October 7th, but instead of seeking revenge, He's working for peace and unity, together with Hamza Awadeh, a Palestinian campaigner who's also lost family members to this endless cycle of violence. They say they must start preparing for a different future, even before the guns fall silent. They only just met at a recent vigil for bereaved families here in London, and they join me in the studio with what turns out to be a masterclass in finding the humanity. Magen, Hamza, welcome to the program. You have suffered an unspeakable tragedy October 7th. Your parents were killed. Can you tell me about it? Yes, uh, so uh, in the morning of October 7th, 
Um, we saw in the news and my family WhatsApp uh, um, started buzzing. And then uh, my uh, um, brother and sisters were asking my parents if they're okay. We got a message uh, from my parents saying that they're in the safe room in their home and they can hear gunshots. They, they've locked the house. Um, and that was the last message we, we got from them. We later learned that uh, Hamas terrorists uh, used uh, motorized parachutes to fly into the village where my parents live. And um, their house was uh, hit uh, directly by a shoulder rocket. Um, and it was uh, partly made of wood. The house burned down completely um, with, with my parents in it. And uh, we prayed that, they, that it was uh, quick and that they did not suffer. And, and we have some consolation that they died together. It is, it's, it's very difficult to hear, isn't it? And, yeah. and this is such a raw and immediate trauma. I'm, I'm fascinated because your family also, Palestinians, have suffered trauma throughout the years. And I'm fascinated how out of this, you particularly, because yours is the most raw, and you have been able to come together. You never met before, right, until you attended a vigil here in London. Tell me, tell me about that, Hamza. Why, what was the vigil and why was it important? So I, I was coming to the UK and um, a mutual friend told me if I would be interested. I honestly have lost hope long time ago because of the negligence to this conflict, because only crazy people, are, crazy leaders are, are saying terrible things and they get away with it. And the international community is playing just lip service to, when they say two-state solution, they don't really mean it. When they say equal measures of freedom and security, they don't really mean it. And I was in the U.S. this summer. I was meeting with U.S. officials and also community leaders, but they didn't see the urgency. But for me, being under the occupation, I see the urgency and I see where the situation is going. And I lost hope. I, 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 and losing hope is really, uh, you know. It's the end. Where there's then, no hope, there's no life. Yeah. And then um, October 7th happened, which was beyond my expectations. People were telling me in the U.S., you are very pessimist. But this actually was really worse than, than what I ever expected. And then I understood that hope is, is you know, like love. It's something you, you, you it's an action. It's not uh, just a feeling. But for people who won't understand this, yeah. how do you, and maybe even you, see hope out of this? How do you see hope out of this moment? We have not, we are creating hope. We don't see, we are creating hope. You're creating it together. Because it's about us. It's about us, about our future and our children's future. Um, we, I personally um, lived all my life um, under very heavy military regime where you, everything was limited. And You're talking about in the, in the in occupied the West Bank? Yeah, occupied West Bank. And my family have suffered all these years and we always thought the future would be better, but it's actually getting worse. And I, I don't want this to my son. I don't want this to myself also. I always dream to have normal problems and have a, but you know, when you, do, when you see leaders not doing the right thing, when you see things also going down very, very fast speed, uh, it's our, we have to take the agency back. Uh, 
And how do you do that, Megan? Again, out of your trauma, I mean, we know that Israel is in a state of trauma right now. The people are traumatized. And I don't even know whether this kind of unity that you're talking about and seeing the other and sharing, you know, humanity, I don't know whether it's possible for people inside Israel right now. How out of your trauma can you re or build, not even rebuild, build it? I think... Uh, two things here. One is that we, we felt as a family that we don't want anyone, any extremists to hijack our pain and, and call for revenge, which is uh, completely uh, not what my parents would have wanted. I mean, they, they, we think, you know, everyone in Israel and Palestine deserve safety and security um, and equality, but, but the, 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 the revenge is not uh, the attitude that, that we were seeking. It was important for my family to speak out and say, you know, we, um, th this, is not, this is not our way. And, and, and on, um, the second thing is where, where I think me and Hamza really see eye to eye is that we have sons that are about the same age. How old are they? Six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. yeah. So they're about the same age. And if we want them to have a future, we have to start working on it now so that they grow up not fearing and not hating anyone else. And, and even in the, I don't know, in the immediate uh, um, future. future, I don't have any uh, magic solutions, but in the long term, I want my kids to grow up uh, so that they, they uh, don't fear and don't hate anyone. And for that, we have to start working now. So I, I know it's maybe sound a little frivolous, but your two particular kids, I think you're trying to get them to, to meet and, and play sports together as a, as a, as a kickoff, so to speak. <laughs> Is that right? You know, now, now I moved to Italy since the war started. So you left on October 7th? I left on October 8th. 8th. Because, you know, I, I, I have responsibility for my son. Maybe this time if I didn't have my child, I would be there to help people. And, you know, there are a lot of refugees from Gaza were in hospitals in Jerusalem and were kicked out and now in Ramallah. But, you know, I have a moral responsibility toward my son. I don't want him to be in this radical situation, an unsafe situation. We were both about to be killed on October 5th. Uh, the army stopped us in Ramallah. They were hiding in the street, they jumped, they loaded their guns, they put it in our heads. Our, you and your son? Me and my son, October 5th already. And I, if I didn't speak Hebrew and, and deal, dealt with it in a very, um, you know, under the stress in a very smart way, we would have been killed. And the officer told me I was not supposed to be there, and it's my fault. I told him, like, how could I know in the, in, in the center of Ramallah that there's army hiding and I should have avoided the street? And I really was thinking about maybe if I do favor to my son, I take him somewhere else. But he loves Palestine. He wants to stay in Palestine with his friends. So in, in Italy, you know, when your environment is, is normal and okay, of course you can play with him. And it's possible. But back home, Palestinian children and Israeli children, even when they live across the street, they can't because the situation is radical. People, have, people are nice. People are good on both sides. But the system is not good. Of course, do you yeah, feel that too? People are nice. People are good on both sides. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we when we first met. So tell me how you first met. You met on the stage or something at this or somewhere at this. I mean, maybe at this underneath. Yes. Yeah. So there was a vigil uh, the Sunday before last where a group of individuals and organizations we we 
we felt like there's a need here in London to say to provide a different voice to people who we understand that many people feel the need to do something so we we wanted to offer an option where it's not just uh, marching down the street with a very simplistic slogan but rather maybe have some some uh, unity and together around common humanity and and getting on the stage people from uh, different backgrounds and bereaved people from and both and israel bereaved. and and palestine yeah um and so we met uh, i think um just near the stage there for the yeah. first time and i think mm -hmm. uh, connected there quite well it was very natural and right. i think we shared very similar values and so it was very natural for us to to go on stage together and and provide that message i mean again it is actually incredible that barely two months after you lost your parents to Palestinian radicals, terrorists, Hamas, that you were immediately able to bond. I, I, I find that extraordinary. Do you find that extraordinary? Yes, but, you know, it's also rational because there's urgency. Mm. And it's about us, you know. Uh, I have always said I'm willing to forgive anyone everything, but at least I won't save the future. You know, I can't forgive anyone for ruining my future. I forgive the past and also the present. But if, if we can't, you know, we, we also see the same. He sees the future, you know. We, we, we didn't get any promise from any leader that the future would be better. So we, we have to, we have the urgency. And, and I think just to add is, um, it's important for me to tell my Israeli friends Listen, guys, there's people on the other side we can talk to. And I, and I think for Hamza, it's important to yeah. tell his Palestinian friends, listen, guys, and I don't know if there's many of us, but I think there might be a growing movement. And just to put it in numbers, if the U.S. spends $3.8 billion a year on military aid, but a fraction of that, so less than $50 million on peace building, just imagine if it was the other way around, where would we be? Yes. And so there's people, there's people on both sides that would like to uh, be part of this peace movement. Again, talking in the long term now, everything yep. is, the flames are so high and tension is so high. But in the long term, this is the only solution. But we need help. It's not going to happen by, by itself. You know, we have this uh, natural connection here that happened because we both felt the urgency, but we need help from, from the outside uh, to, to be able to bring that to many more people. And again, you two are both outside your respective countries. And you left on yes. October 8th, you have been here. How do you do it from the outside? How, do you feel Maybe you need to go back to, 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 to light this movement that, you, that you've sparked? Uh, my son every day tells me I want to go back. And I, I speak with people, even in Gaza. This morning, a friend of mine was killed. Uh, he was a journalist. He was part of a peace program that I, I ran uh, in the past. That was also about journalism. We brought journalists together. I, I speak with people and I keep in touch and I, I try to listen from them, not from the media, not from the leaders, because, you know, the truth is the ordinary people on the ground. I tell them, how can I help? What message is the world has to know? 
And I hope, you know, I'm being helpful by being outside and being free, because if I was back home, I wouldn't be able to say what I'm saying now. You know, there is censorship, there is... Um, the, the army would arrest someone for a Facebook status for speaking up. I, I get threats. I, I get uh, condemnation from both sides, you know. Um, so being outside, I um, have uh, this privilege really to speak freely and I would, I'm trying to be the voice of people. And we'll be ba I will be back um, hopefully soon, hopefully this war ends soon. And we, we will have to work with people. On this program, we had one of the peace activists who you all know, Robbie Damelin, who I think was at the same uh, at the same vigil. She also is a bereaved Israeli parent and she works with Palestinians, parents who've lost their children as well. And she said something to us. She said, I'm imploring your country and other countries not to import our conflict. What do you think that means? How does that resonate with you? So I love Robbie and she's an amazing woman. Um, I think in a way it's too late. The conflict is already imported into London and the US and Europe. Um, and you know, my son here goes to a, a, a school that in a very diverse community, um, people from all backgrounds, uh, including Muslim, uh, quite a large Muslim uh, uh, community. And, and we love that. We have very good relationships with everyone in the school over the last few years. And since October 7th, tensions are really high. And so I hope the vigil and, and the, the um, my Hamza is a new partner, but also other people, we can provide a different platform for people to show that they care about what is happening in the Middle East, but we can provide solidarity and maybe serve as role models here in London where it's easier, serve as role models for what should happen in the Middle East as well. And, and I hope uh, we can do that because, again, the, the conflict is already here. It's in schools, it's in universities, it's in communities. And so if we're able to provide a different voice here, maybe that would uh, help people in the Middle East as well. Can I ask you both, I mean, I don't know whether you want to address, you know, you are two individuals who may have a lot of individuals and, and people behind you, but you're not in government, you're not in the military, you're not in NGOs or anything like that. And you've both complained about the status of your leadership. Um, clearly, this government's popularity is at rock bottom. Yes, Israelis support the war and to get rid of Hamas in Gaza, but the, po the popularity is at rock bottom. They want Netanyahu and his cohort out. Same on the Palestinian side, the popularity of, of the PA, your nominal leaders, rock bottom. What can you tell me about Hamas? Do you think they're, are they benefiting from this situation? Do you think they're popular? I mean, they, they can't lead to, to, to what you're talking about, can they? I think what, uh, what's happening now is the biggest service for Hamas. Um, whoever uh, is thinking killing people, will weaken Hamas is really never understood anything from history. This is not the first war with Hamas. Israel have had several wars with Hamas and several times they eliminated political leaders and military leaders. And this only get Hamas popularities. Like most of the fighters are the orphans of the previous wars. And the, and the orphans of this war will be the soldiers of the next war. So if we need to eradicate Hamas, I mean, genuinely and successfully, we have to change the circumstances. We have to show people a different vision. To tell people um, 
yes, you will have a state. You're entitled to human rights. You're entitled to equal rights. And then we can you know, come and talk about unity, about tolerance, about acceptance, and all of that. But people are threatened. People hear Israeli leaders saying in the Knesset podium that there will be another Nakba, that Palestinians will never have a state. And then I come and talk to, about peace with them. I don't sound authentic. I, don't, I have tried this over and over, and I have tried it and told them and explained to them, I do, I do it for you. You have to, to, to live without resentment and victimhood for yourself. But it doesn't come naturally to people when, when they are threatened all the time, and the world has abandoned them. Uh, President Biden, which I admire, when he came, I was so relieved you know, that Trump is no longer president, and I was really hoping at least he will do small things. He promised to open the concert in Jerusalem, he couldn't. The Palestinian office in, in, in Washington, D.C. is still closed. He did nothing. And then he put all his energy in normalization with Saudi Arabia, which is nice. But Palestinians are there. Why they're invisible? Because they're quiet? Why Palestinians have to, you know, do something so crazy to be seen? And only then, you know, start talking about Palestinians. Like what I felt in Washington, D.C. this summer, that Americans are waiting for a crisis to step in. But as long as the situation is under control, which was not under control for Palestinians, for Israelis was, you know, settlements are expanding, settlers are going crazy, that they will step in. So Hamas, naturally, you know, we have to take the agency from Hamas by showing alternative to the people. And you are a direct victim of Hamas's terror. Your parents have been killed. Where do you see the solution? So... You know, the, the billions in military aid did not keep my parents safe. That's the truth. And I think if I want uh, for my family in Israel and my friends in Israel to be safe, there needs to be some kind of a political solution. So the effort should go in that direction. In the, in the immediate term, I think, and I don't want to make a moral comparison between the two sides, but they have very extreme ideas on both sides. And, and I expect the international community and people uh, living uh, outside of the Middle East to realize that they should drive a wedge between the very extreme ideas uh, of Hamas and the Palestinian people and also drive a wedge between the very extreme right-winged ideology in Israel and the Israeli people. And, and it's, I, I know it's slightly more complicated than the slogan that people are chanting, but it's not that much complicated. Yeah. And so people should realize that the, the vast majority of people in Israel-Palestine want to live their life at peace, and they want their kids to play football. It, it's not, again, it's, for me, it's like we're stating the obvious, yeah. that people are human beings. <laughs> and it, this is not a crazy message. Well, you two have clearly demonstrated that, recognized that, you're living it, you're acting it, and you're coming to tell us and the world about it. And it's so important to have this dialogue. And I really admire your courage and your commitment. So, Magen, thank you so much. And Hamza, thank you so much for thank coming you. in. Thank you very much, Christine. Such brave warriors for peace. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, 
and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. And now the real climate work begins after a major deal struck Wednesday in Dubai. More than 200 countries must start to follow through on their promise to transition away from fossil fuels. The UN climate summit known as COP28 was heralded as a great success by the host country and major oil producer, the UAE. But vulnerable island nations see major loopholes and they worry this life or death situation for them isn't being tackled urgently enough. Alok Sharma is a British MP who was the president of the COP26 summit in Glasgow two years ago. And I asked him what's been achieved since he hosted at that time. Alok Sharma, welcome back to the programme. Thank you so much. So in the cold light of day, at the end of this very, very tense negotiation, I would like to know your verdict. The UN climate chief said, this is a climate lifeline, not the finish line. So vital, but not all that we wanted. Well, uh, Christian, we made significant progress at uh, COP28. And uh, if I just go back to COP26, it was the first time in 26 COPs we got language for the first time on phase down of coal. Uh, here, we went even further. We got language on uh, the, the tra transition away from all uh, fossil fuels. Uh, of course, many of us would have liked uh, language, very clear language on phase out of fossil fuels. Uh, but I certainly think that this does spell the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. Mm -hmm. But I'll just make this one point, which is that whichever COP you talk about, these are just words on a page. And for them to have real meaning, it now needs countries and companies to step forward and deliver with real action. Uh, and so the proof of the pudding will be if in a year from now we're sitting here and discussing you know, the progress that's been made or whether, in fact, um, you know, people have just disregarded international commitments that they've made. And there is a, uh, a deadline for a year to regroup to see what, what progress has been made ahead of the next COP. Or, well, it is the next COP. But the question I have then is... Given the fact that you just mentioned the phase down of coal done in Glasgow, part of the United Kingdom, and this very UK government did not deliver and actually opened a new coal mine, talked about opening new uh, drilling in the North Sea, how much can we depend on governments to do the right thing, as you just suggested? Well, look, it's vitally important that... But you agree with me, right? Well, this country itself back down from what you achieved at COP26? Well, I was very clear at the time when the decision was made on giving permission for a new coal mine uh, that that was uh, not a, a, a positive thing. Uh, and it does have an impact in terms of our international reputation. As it happens, that coal mine has not yet been opened uh, and we don't know whether it will ever be opened. Uh, but the, the message it sends, the rhetoric, uh, is uh, unfortunate. And we've had some more of that more recently. Uh, and so in the conversations that I've had with our international partners, they have been concerned that the UK has somehow moved away uh, from the high point of our international climate diplomacy at COP26. Uh, and I, I, I know that many of our, our closest partners want us to be back at the top table, uh, leading domestically and leading internationally. The big leader in the world is generally considered to be the United States. It had been the most polluting country. Now, I believe China is the most polluting country. Secretary of State John Kerry is President Biden's climate czar. 
And it appears he made some really, he leveraged all his incredible contacts. He spoke directly with the Saudi energy minister, with the Chinese uh, counterpart that he has on this, because the Saudi and OPEC countries were threatening not even to talk about this transition. How important is it for America not just to be at the table, but to really throw its weight behind this? Well, look, I got to know John Kerry uh, very well over the past few years. Uh, I'm a huge fan of John's. Uh, and uh, he was incredibly helpful uh, at COP26. Uh, and I'm sure he will have played a critical role at COP28 as well. But what ultimately matters is what countries do. What does the US do uh, in terms of its policies, its domestic policies? What does the UK do? What does China do? Uh, and this is the critical point for me, is uh, until and unless countries are prepared to act, uh, we will not see the progress that we need. And, you know, one of the things that all of us want to see is to keep alive the prospect of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. Uh, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We need to see much faster progress. And while we await that progress, next we turn to one of America's most brilliant lyricists, Tariq Trotter of The Roots, better known as Black Thought. The Grammy-winning artist has wowed audiences for decades with his live performance skills. Some music critics contend that he's one of the greatest rappers of all time. Now, Black Thought is out with a memoir examining a life that began with tragedy. Both his mother and father were murdered. The book is called The Upcycled Self, and he discusses it now with Hari Srinivasan. Christian, thanks. Tariq Totter, also known as Black Thought to most of us who have listened to him for so many years as part of The Roots. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, uh, congratulations on this book. I am not surprised that you're venturing out into this sort of written word expression. Um, what does the upcycled self mean? I'm from Philadelphia, from a specific place in, in, in time there, um, where you, know, you had to sort of move through life with... Uh, 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 a layer of 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 scar to of, of callus, right? Of 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 scar tissue, almost as a, a protective sort of thing. Um, you know, and it and it serves a purpose at at uh, your one 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 time in your life, or at least it may. And then as we evolve, as we you know mature, um, as we move on in life, uh, you know, the, these things no longer serve us in the same way. So the upcycle self, it speaks to you know the wisdom it takes to recognize when to you know leave a thing in the past yeah. um to adapt away a, a or, or or you know um to 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 move forward in 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 a different way you start out this book with something i i suspect anybody would want to leave in the past and it's a horrendous story of you setting your house on fire as a little kid playing with toys uh you know being a curious kid and starting a fire with your TV, what were some of the repercussions of that event? Yeah, you know, the book actually begins with uh, with the fire. Um, it took place when I was six years old. I burned my, uh, you know, my family home down. And um, yeah, I think, you know, the story to follow um, that puts you in into the the mind of uh, you know the 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 story is told in the spirit of the phoenix. So I, I'm you know I think I I very much um emerged you know from the flame. So it begins with the fire, even though that wasn't my first um traumatic experience. Even at that young age, it mm. was um you know it was a watershed moment in that way, and it was a moment. It was my earliest memory of a time after which uh you know things would never be the same. You know, but um. You know, talk talk about uh, uh, just curiosity, right? Of 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 a child, 
and um, the tremendous amount of grace and wisdom that it took my mother, you know, for her to extend and not come home, you know, after having lost everything and sort of, you know, lose it. Her main concern was that no one had been hurt. And, um, you know, I wasn't remanded. I wasn't punished in the way that I'd expected to be. And I think um, there's 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 beauty and, and there was a, there was great value in that. And my mother sort of recognizing that it was my curiosity and it was yeah. my, uh, you know, imagination that 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 led to, uh, you know, to, to 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 the event. So she was able to help me, um, you know, to encourage me to lean into that curiosity and, and into that imagination by um, getting into the arts. So what did that do to your mom, you think? I mean, because she had worked so hard to, you know, your, your father um, had been murdered um, earlier and she was raising you too. And she's built all these things. She's saved up. She's kind of built something normal for the two of you as normal mm-hmm. as can be. And then to literally see it go up in smoke, what does that do to her psyche? What, what did you find out over time? It really, I mean, over time, I, I came to realize just the tremendous amount of uh, strength and, and you know, resilience that she had. Because you think back, you know, my, when she lost my father, my father was very young. He was you know, maybe 26. My mother was still very young. When you at the time, there's no way that she could have fully recovered because I think maybe... You know, maybe four years or so had passed, if that. So she was the whole family was still very much in the uh, in the grieving process, yeah. you know. So this was sort of, um, you know, back back to back loss in that way. That yeah, I mean, you know, it should have and and could have, uh, you know, uh, been devastating, but um, it wasn't in 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 many ways. So who were the men that you looked at as role models or father figures during this? impressionable time um my my earliest examples of of manhood um you know aside from you know what i saw in my grandparents like in my in my you know my father's father um who i saw you know rarely and um in in my mother's uh stepfather who who i referred to as as my grandfather they were sort of the examples um but then there were uh you know the gentlemen that were in my mother's life so my the people that my mother uh, would date you know my, my mother's male friends um a, a colorful cast of, of of characters um you know set uh many an example some were good examples some were bad you know um, but yeah, that, that was sort of what, what I had. And, uh, and I had, again, my older brother, um, who for all intents and purposes, um, was away from the family because he spent, you know, um, he essentially came to adulthood in juvenile, in the juvenile justice system. And yeah. then, you know, you graduated. Your mom figured out somehow that your curiosity also translated into the ability for you to express yourself artistically. And she pushed you into that how did she do that i think the earliest indication of you know her sort of understanding that uh, that thing that that dynamic was uh you know just in her encouraging me to uh to take art classes i think in in in, in the summer well you know um, even before i took visual art classes my mother yeah. um she like, signed me up for for choir and you know she'd always encouraged me to sort of lean into music but when she found yeah. out that um visual art was sort of my thing then she was really really just super supportive of that and um yeah she you know at every turn she would uh, register me for a thing um anything that was free i was definitely going to do but you know <laughs> the, all, all the other things that we anything we could afford or save up for um yeah. she also would encourage. You also are 
you know, very vulnerable in this book and you write about some very painful moments. Um, in terms of your mom, uh, you basically have kind of a scene that you play out of, and it, it's to try to essentially rescue her from what would be a crack house. Uh, what was mm -hmm. that like? I mean, you know, it was, that may have been, I mean, I think about low points of my life, you know, yeah. dark moments. Um, you know, I don't know that I've ever been as, resigned as you know just sad and down you know bad as i was in that moment um and it's something that i think i've grappled with um over the years but yeah in that moment um you know i went to go and uh you know i was we've been looking for my mom for um a, a, a period of days you know a couple of days had gone by and i i tracked her down and she was in a drug a drug house and um yeah you know i thought i was um you know, the showing up like the Calvary. <laughs> I was there to, you know, to save my mom, you know, take her out of this place. And, um, you know, it was the heart. You know, I had to accept the harsh reality of just, you know, the matter of fact that she in that moment preferred to remain. Right. She didn't she didn't want to leave. So yeah. I couldn't convince her to leave. And it was uh, yeah, that was it was just a super gut wrenching moment for me as a young person, you know, because I was um, I mean, you know, as I recall, I may have been I was 14, you know, 13 or yeah. 14 years old. Later in the book, you were, you're not living with your mom. You're someplace else. H how did you find out that your mother was dead? Yeah. Um, my mother was murdered when I was, uh, I think I just turned 16 or somewhere between 15 and 16. My, my mother was murdered. I, um, I moved out of the city of Philadelphia to, uh, to Michigan, to Southfield, Michigan, right outside Detroit to um to stay with uh, an uncle with my one of my father's brothers who I never met um you know just because um the streets had gotten so crazy um uh, my neighborhood was crazy lots of my friends were um you know being murdered or you know sent to prison and um it was uh you know it was the middle of 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 you know 1980s drug crack epidemic in in everything that sort of came along with it so my family yeah. had sent me to Michigan for a while and um you know, it didn't work out in Michigan, but when I came back to Philly, it was, uh, we were, we had agreed that I wouldn't return to my old neighborhood. So no, I wasn't living with my mother. I was staying um, in an apartment that my grandparents owned. She was sort of living her life and I was living mine. I had school, I had work and, you know, days, sometimes weeks would go by without us, you know, uh, seeing one another, but we would speak on the phone. And I just remember uh, there was a period uh, during which a few days had gone by when no one in the family had heard from or seen my mother, which also also, again, wasn't, um, you know, out of, mm -hmm. out of the norm, right? And over, you know, a period of days through that process of elimination, um, my mother was identified as, as a Jane Doe who had, who had you know, turned up uh, in, in the morgue. So, yeah, and, and, you know, the way I found out, I mean, it was, I don't know, I think my whole family, you know, even by that, by that point had become uh, a bit numb to um, just experiences with, that would otherwise be you know, yeah. life shattering traumatic experience for other people. We were just so used to um loss and 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 grief that um yeah I don't know that they that they uh pulled any punches. I don't know that I think you know they my aunt as I recall my aunt and my grandmother so you know two my, my grandmother and her sister um just confirmed with me that the body the Jane Doe that had been you know found that we suspected was my mother yes that was mm. that was Cassie you know and um you know we just started to move move forward with the arrangements you know it was um it's wild I didn't even I don't remember having shed a tear uh during my mother's death until I saw her body 
being uh, you know, lowered, lowered into the ground. At that time, uh, you're also at uh, a creative arts high school, uh, the Philadelphia High School for Creative and Performing Arts, Kappa, mm-hmm. right? And we know who they are now, but who was in that high school at the time that was, I guess, your competition, your classmates, uh, your peers that were also performers yeah. that went on to be more successful? I went to that school, um, which was sort of Philadelphia's version of a uh, LaGuardia in New York City, or you know, like Fame. It was a, uh, it was like Fame <laughs> of the TV series and and the and the film. Um, and um, yeah, I was a visual arts major, but there were just very many uh, uh, singers and instrumentalists there um, who were already you know forces to be reckoned with in their own right. So Questlove, who you know he and I met there and started the Roots, but there was also Boys to Men who before they even came together as boys to men were parts of, you know, other male ensembles who, you know, just beautiful, um, you know, harmonies. And, you know, so it was walking through the halls of that school um, made me feel the way it must have felt to, you know, like in the days of of, of corner boy doo-wop. Band, yeah. You know what I'm saying? They would be, you know, at any given moment, someone would break out into song and you'll turn a corner and there'd be Wanye and Nate, you know, working on a harmony. So there was that. And it was a, a, a huge confidence builder for me. You know, what I mean, to see kids that yeah. I knew, um, you know, doing like going on, you know, to the onward and upward. So how did you and Amir Questlove find each other? Questlove and I found each other in the, in the principal's office um, <laughs> where we were. <laughs> You know, it probably wasn't the first time we, you know, were in the space together, but we were like two ships, um, you know, passing each other at sea in the in in, in the night, um, usually. And it was uh, in this instance, I think I was going, I was on my way out um, on a suspension, um, which, you know, I, I got suspended sometimes. So I was, uh, I'd done something and I was, <laughs> I was uh, being suspended from school. So I was in the office and um Quest walked in. I think he was bringing like flowers and apples to the to the faculty, and um, he uh, he had on he had on a jacket of a hand painted um, denim jacket, which was you know, one of my side hustles at the time. Was I would do hand painted denim, like you know jeans and jackets, and I would sell them, you know, out, really out of, out of my locker. So yeah. the jacket that he wore that day. And um, and I think maybe his necklace, too, that he had on was uh, sort of the gateway to um, a dynamic that will grow where, you know, um, I was able to put him on to parts of elements of, of the culture um, and you know, hip hop music that he had been exposed to yet and vice versa. And, uh, you know, we became an, an odd couple and, and we remain as such. I think, you know, maybe both of us, you know, just had a desire to. You know, for 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 brotherhood to experience that brotherhood because even even though I had a brother, I still hadn't really experienced that dynamic in the way that you know other siblings had. So um, it was great, yeah, to have a brother at that time. And then um, our relationship evolved into something else when it became a business relationship, and it evolved into uh, now what is a, a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, yeah. Were, we were from, from brotherhood to marriage. So I, I wonder, um, you formed this group. At the time, it wasn't called The Roots, right? What was it called? Before we were called The Roots, we, yeah. we were called Square Roots. Square, that's, that's right. So Square Roots. And I wonder, uh, the Square Roots, in the type of influences that were mixing to make the type of music that you wanted to make, and put that in the context of what was happening at the time, because what we see of The Roots now, 
uh, which is a mix of so many different influences, is not what was kind of playing on the streets and the car stereos uh, as you as as you were growing up and this group was starting. Yeah, I think, you know, um, it was a huge challenge um, because not only did we not, you know, like we didn't look, we didn't have the, the same, you know, aesthetic as uh, our, our contemporaries at the time, um, nor yeah. did we sound or feel, nor did like our music sound or feel like theirs. So, you know, in the, a mixtape, mixed radio show era, um, the roots music sort of stood out like a sore thumb. Um, and it it's wild that, you know, it stood out in its musicality, you know, yeah. because we, it was live instrumentation and it just didn't feel like, um, you know, the standard at that time, it, it just felt more um, electronic. And, you know, we had to fight to represent those influences, right? In yeah. order to, uh, you know, to 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 expand sort of the palette of, um, of uh, the culture, you know? And um, it's something that, you know, I mean, it's taken some time, but I think over time we, the roots, has you know been hugely responsible for reestablishing that standard, and you know now you see you know, folks who go out to tour to do gigs, um, studio sessions. You rarely see, I mean, even within the realm of hip hop, people who don't use live instrumentation. Is there? Um... You have been in so many different formats. You write about the fact that you were a graffiti artist. Um, at the time, that could be considered vandalism, uh, depending on who, who saw your work, right? You've done visual arts. You've uh, been rhyming for decades. Uh, here you are writing a book. I mean, what is it about self-expression that keeps you wanting to try it in another format? It's the the challenge of of taking on a new sort of format, uh, working in a new medium, of allowing you know one discipline to inform another. Um, it keeps me engaged, and you know I, I always meet you know folks. Sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's more. But you know if there's one person that you know my work, my story. Um, has resonated with in a way that, you know, has, you know, given them any deeper insight into themselves or into their story, then, yeah. um, then it's worth it. You know what I mean? And that is, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a, a, a two-sided therapy, right? Like this is my, like, this is, is the, the, the work, the process is cathartic for me in that way. So, um, yeah, I just keep, you know, accepting new challenges because there's nothing that, you know, I mean, there's so many people that I've seen come from Philadelphia, um, yeah. And, and and try a thing and win. And and those who have won, though all those many people who I'm able to list who have won, they've won because they they didn't give up. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, you know, I feel like if anything, any challenge that that I take on, as long as I stick to it, um, I'm going to be able to see it through to fruition. The book is called The Upcycled Self, a memoir on the art of becoming who we are. Author Tariq Trotter, also known as Black Thought from the Roots. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. And never give up, that is sound advice from a man who lived it. If you want more Black Thought, you can find him and The Roots 
on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. They are the house band. And finally, as awards season rolls around again, one unforgettable performance is sure to be a contender. Actor Gael Garcia Bernal's poignant turn as Cassandro, the real-life Mexican wrestler who broke cultural taboos as easily as he broke chokeholds. Cassandro is an exotico, a wrestler who comes from a tradition of campy drag performance. My colleague Biana Goladriga spoke with him spoke with Bernal, and he describes the impact that performing publicly as the outrageous Cassandro had on the personal life of the wrestler himself named Saul. Saul, the character, is used to this, this duality, you know, to play these different roles depending on where he is. And, uh, and with his boyfriend and with uh, his mother, he's always plays this secret life. You know, yes, very, very uh, loving and very supportive, but at the same time, it's a secret. Outside, can, you know, he can't be known, you know? And so Cassandra is the kind of the detonator for all that. Uh, is the one that kind of like says, no, no, I don't want to be in, in the secret anymore. You can catch Cassandro on Amazon Prime right now, and you can catch Biana's full interview with Gael Garcia Bernal on this program tomorrow. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thanks for watching and goodbye from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.